Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Guys, did you know that an estimated 70 million people in the United States alone are affected by SIBO, IBS, or one of the more than a dozen other diseases linked to digestive health? And 74% of Americans say they live with symptoms of, of digestive discomfort, irritable bowel syndrome, known as IBS, and most common gastro, gastrointestinal condition in the United States affects millions of people of all ages. Not only do those who suffer with IBS and its similar counterpart or sister diagnosis, which is honestly just disgusting and horrible, uh, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO. Many experience symptoms such as abdominal pain, bloating, and altered bowel habits. They may also avoid participating in activities, social events, or travel for fear of having to constantly disappear to the bathroom or the embarrassment of explaining their discomfort. My guest today is the incredible Dr. Ali Rezai. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, he is the medical director of the GI Motility Program at Cedars-Sinai, Los Angeles, and the program director of the GI Motility Motility Fellowship Training. He is an Associate Professor at Cedars-Sinai and an Associate Clinical Professor at UCLA. Dr. Rizai also serves as the Director of Bioinformatics and Biotechnology at Medically Associated Science and Technology Program at Cedars-Sinai. Apart from his training in gastrointestinology, he has postdoctoral training in gastrointestinal motility disorders and also inflammatory bowel diseases, IBD. 
uh, along with master's degree in epidemiology. Dr. Ali Rezai has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers that have been cited over 7,000 times. He has a brand new book, which not long ago came out actually, uh, it was in April of this year called The Microbiome Connection, uh, Your Guide to IBS, SIBO and Low Fermentation Eating. And I highly recommend that if you do struggle with any form of bowel discomfort, you guys might know my own journey with that, uh, then please get a copy of his book. I wanted to bring this conversation out a little bit later in the year because I had quite a few people on uh, recently talking about SIBO and IBS and I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a break. But now I'm bringing out this one in particular because I think that with the increasing of mental health and, and just health in general, uh, I think that this might be a huge, huge help for many, many of you uh, at the moment that could be struggling. It is one of my favorite conversations in regards to the subject of SIBO and IBS. And I also share a little bit more of my own journey with Dr. Ali. There's, we get into so many great topics in this one. So I know it's going to be a helpful guide for each and every one of you. If you do struggle with, with gut problems or, or anything of that nature, um, then please share it around to your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. I'll also make the link for the book, The Microbiome Connection, in the show notes below for you guys to make it easy. But also don't forget that my very first book is just a few days away from launching into the world. It's called The Path of an Eagle, and I'll make the link available in the show notes below too. Uh, to make it easy for you guys. If you haven't already gotten a copy, I highly encourage you guys to do that. And I hope that you all uh, can help support the show, support yourself and support uh, what I am trying to do in, in being a blessing to each and every one of you. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to dive into the story box today as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than Dr. Ali Rezai. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. And uh, thanks for the kind introduction. Well, hopefully I got all those words correct. There's a lot of big words. <laughs> for those people that are listening to the audio, go and watch the YouTube video for the actual introduction that I just did. Uh, you can you can say, well done, Jay, for, for getting past all those words. But it, it just shows that you are very, very informative and talented in terms of all the incredible work that you are doing in the world and you're in the scrubs today for those people that can't see he's still working and he's made the time to be here today which i'm very grateful for dr ali before we unbox more of your story and uh SIBO, gut microbiome all that sort of stuff the very first question that i have for you is a question i love asking all my guests at the very start which is what does success look like for you So that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think success is when you set up realistic, but yet achievable goals for you. Uh, and then you try your best to achieve those. And um, you may not potentially achieve those goals, but if you get uh, to a point that you know that you have done your best to reach those goals, and that's success. And that's both on the professional side and also on the personal side, I have to say, because, you know, on professional side, for example, from the research standpoint, you set some achievable goals. You have some set points that, okay, I want to prove this concept. I want to 
do this test to help patients uh, in terms of diagnosis and treatment. Well, sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't. These are all theories and hypotheses that gets checked, but um, not achieving it is not um, lack of success. You doing your best to get to those points, I think it's, it's the success uh, that's, uh, that's, I think, uh, that's that's the way to go, I would say. I totally agree with you on, on that front. Yeah. You got the personal yeah. version and you got the career version. I think right. people need to understand the differences between both of them and keeping them separate in some, some capacity. But <laughs> when was the moment for you, Dr. Ali, that you realized that uh, this was, in fact, these, these goals that you set for yourself was, in fact, the success for you? Has it been this sort of gradual thing over the course of your life where you've realized it at different moments or is there more of a catalyst somewhere for you? Well, in terms of you uh, feeling that success uh, in the field of medicine, I would say it's actually an, an easier field than uh, other fields in the sense that your feedback comes from your patients. Mm -hmm. So when your patients come back to you and with the implementation of uh, what you have done for them and they feel relief and they're grateful to you. Uh, and that's just the, that just has been the fruit of your research. Um, I mean, that's that success to me. That's uh, say that, hey, I, hey, I've helped uh, someone. So when I get emails or even messages that say, hey, uh, this uh, treatment or this test uh, that you helped develop uh, and uh, helped me immensely, helped me diagnose me and helped me uh, um, understanding my disease and also helped me uh, treating it and get better. Uh, I mean, that's that's a sign of uh, success to me. So I guess uh, in medicine, we have it good uh, because we have uh, humans on the other side to give us feedback of how we're doing. Um, so that's that's the gauge, I would say. Why did you enter or decide to study in the field of medicine in the first place? So um, I'm not going to give you the cliche of, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to help uh, like everybody that I see uh, that starting at age six. But no, the, when I was in uh, uh, high school, I really enjoyed biology um, and not just uh, human biology uh, at uh, any point of biology and even zoology and uh, botany. Uh, and because of that, I pursued medicine because I knew that that is the most evidence-based part of biology. And then I, I, I really like uh, medicine. And as uh, I was in med school, I, I was lucky to uh, find a mentor uh, that by chance is field of research was mostly in uh, drugs being developed in the field of gastroenterology uh, and um, the rest is history. So that's uh, that's kind of uh, how I got into it, a personal interest that I got into medicine and then a mentorship of a great mentor to begin with. Yeah. What was it about gastroenterology that right. sort of fascinated you more than all the other areas of human health or the the more bio, biology of humans? So, I mean, if you think about it, uh, GI is quite a unique, a unique sort of uh, set of uh, organs put together. So 
we say it uh, from gum to bomb, essentially, uh, all uh, the organs, uh, and, and each part does something different. And each part does have a role with its motility, the way it moves, uh, the secretions of it, what it produces, uh, and also the microbiome inside of it and how it digests uh, the, the food and also the immunology inside the uh, uh, the the GI tract. So it makes it a very fascinating part. In terms of gastroenterology itself, the science, it deals with the medical part of things. So you're dealing with diagnosis and treatment. And on top of it, you do a lot of interventions as well in terms of endoscopy, whether through the mouth or colonoscopy. Uh, so we do a lot of hands-on um, processes and interventions and procedures. Uh, so it's a very good amalgamation of uh, medical uh, knowledge uh, plus interventions that we do uh, to diagnose and also treat patients, which is rare in medicine. Uh, so many times you're on the uh, surgical side that uh, you're doing a lot of uh, procedures or you're on the, uh, the side that you're doing a lot of uh, uh, medical parts without any procedures. So GI is kind of unique that we're kind of the half surgeon, half uh, uh, medical doctors. So it's it's a good mix that keeps you going. Uh, and another field that I'm very interested in is device development. Uh, so uh, because that this is a device dependent uh, specialty, so a lot of things are changing, a lot of innovations, uh, and that is very exciting. And you know, and this this is the age of innovations and. Um, all new things that show up every day. Uh, and so that's why this is a booming field, which uh, I love to be. I think it's a very interesting field because yeah. mainly I've had issues with my gut since, I guess, 2017, mm -hmm. uh, which ended me into hospital. So I had a massive bowel blockage um, and it wasn't a fun time. Let's just say that it's very gruesome. And I was under a gastro the second hospital trip. You heard me correctly. I was in hospital twice, a total of nine days uh, with this massive bowel blockage. So the last day or the last hospital trip, uh, I was finally seen to by a gastro who helped me immensely uh, get rid of the blockage. And uh, we ended up doing a colonoscopy and, and endoscope afterwards which discovered that i had ibs and and all that sort of stuff all that to say i'm curious in so you you probably look at a lot of different people a lot of different illnesses that involve the gut the microbiome the the gastro uh the esophagus all, all those things what are some of the most common forms of illnesses that you end up treating on a day-to-day -day basis Sorry that, that you have gone uh, through that, but um, one thing is that uh, GI disorders are extremely common. Um, but one thing that I've, I'm going to tell you is that they're essentially most of them are invisible illnesses. So you know, from the outside, patients look really good, uh, but they're suffering inside. And that's why for the longest time, a lot of GI disorders have been neglected. Uh, and that's that's a problem that 
um, in our field that we have been trying really hard to overcome. So one of the diseases that are extremely common, and in fact, the most common disease is what you just said, irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, uh, which I see a lot uh, in my outpatient clinic. I would say 60 to 70% of the patients that I see in the clinic are IBS patients. Uh, now, uh, the irritable bowel syndrome is a is kind of an umbrella term in terms of uh, what causes it. Uh, what it is, is essentially it, it is uh, you have abdominal pain associated with change in bowel habits and uh, stool consistency and stool frequency. So if you think about it, a lot of diseases uh, that we can go uh, through in detail if you want that can cause those um, symptoms that you have to tease out, first diagnose, and then uh, you try to figure out um, whether um, you can treat it uh, or uh, you need to modify the disease or you need some sort of maintenance uh, therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's, that's a very common disorder. Obviously, there are other uh, common disorders, but by far, IBS is uh, the most common luminal GI disorder that we have. Why is it so common? And is it so? Are there any sort of age ranges that it does affect the most, or is it just particularly one set age group, like young people? Because I never had IBS before until 2017. So I think I was in my 20s, mm. um, but before then, didn't have any issues. So is it just that it develops later on in life or does kids still get it as well? No, it can happen at any age, but the most common age of presentation is in your twenties and thirties and forties. Uh, so uh, the why it's, and, and the prevalence is increasing dramatically. Uh, so whether in the Western world or even uh, in Asian countries, for example, Singapore uh, has reported the prevalence of IBS increasing from um, 2% in 1990 uh, to about 20% uh, uh, in 2020. So it's increasing dramatically. Now, why is it uh, becoming more uh, prevalent? One theory is that um, we are, we're not having the same habits as we used to have 40 years ago, right? 40 years ago, uh, the world was not a small village uh, in terms of cultures and all that, right? So now these days, what do we do? We go out and we travel a lot. Well, not during COVID days, I guess, uh, but uh, we used to travel and now we travel a lot as opposed to four decades ago, we uh um, we eat different ethnic food. We're exposed to uh, different uh, bugs and bacteria all over the world. Uh, you know, uh, infectious gastroenteritis is becoming uh, common. And every time you pick up infectious gastroenteritis or food poisoning, uh, you have about 11% chance of developing post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, uh, which is... Uh, becoming almost the most uh, common single cause uh, of irritable bowel syndrome, uh, which uh, is on the rise uh, and we see it in a lot of uh, patients. For example, the classic story is that, hey, I travel to 
in North America. Usually I traveled to Mexico and there I picked up uh, food poisoning. I had a little bit of diarrhea and then a, a little bit of a vomiting, uh, but uh, that subsided. But then after that, my bowels have never been the same. I have alternating bowel, uh, bowel movements. I'm gay. Whenever I eat, I get bloated and distended. Uh, when I eat uh, uh, in the morning, I'm flat. But when I eat, uh, my stomach gets more and more distended by the evening. I feel like I'm six months pregnant. Uh, what's going on to me? And uh, I didn't have any of these uh, symptoms. So those are the, uh, the usual scenario that I hear that patients uh, uh, recall. So many times, in fact, that, that episode of food poisoning could have been very miles. Uh, hey, uh, I went to Mexico uh, and I don't remember if I got sick in that uh, trip, but uh, maybe I vomited a couple of times. I wasn't sure if it was food poisoning or it was the tequila. I don't know. Uh, but then uh, now uh, everything has uh, changed. So uh, even a mild food poisoning can cause uh, trouble. That's interesting because I didn't travel um, before yeah, I didn't, I didn't go anywhere pretty much. I was st stuck in Sydney, Australia. But what I did was I restricted my, the amount of foods that I did end up eating, which, you know, you, I think your gut needs a little bit more like food groups in it. And I only had like a, a select few and I ate a one kilo bag of spinach pretty much every single day. So you can probably imagine that my gut wasn't happy at the result of me eating a ton of spinach plus mixed with cheese sauce, all these mm -hmm. things. It was nuts, Dr. Ali. <laughs> Crazy. And hopefully people can learn from my bad mistakes. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm curious about if someone does have IBS uh, or they they don't really know what to look out for, what are some of the, the main sort of symptoms? Because you did mention earlier mm -hmm. some illnesses with the gut, they can go undetected. So what should we look out for? Is IBS as well something that is undetectable for some people? So essentially the common symptoms that, uh, that you will suffer is a change in bowel habits. You used to have like two or three years ago, one bowel movement every day and well-formed. Uh, and now what you're experiencing is a change in bowel habits. Now it can be broken down into uh, different categories. One category uh, is IBS diarrhea or diarrhea predominant irritable bowel syndrome. So patients with uh, these uh, this subtype essentially present with uh, more frequent bowel movements. And these uh, frequent bowel movements are usually associated with urgency. Uh, urgency meaning that, hey, when you have to go, you got to go. Uh, and that's, that's very... Uh, um, uh, not specific, but definitely present in patients with uh, IBS. This is to a point that a lot of patients with IBS, for example, uh, know all the bathrooms uh, on the way to, to work. Uh, so they know, you know, it's, uh, yeah, every 7-Eleven uh, around the corner. Um, so, or every McDonald's, you know, you know where to stop by, right? Um, and then uh, they have apps, for example, on their phone that tells them where is the closest uh, bathroom, right? So, and if you look at these apps that tells you where the bathrooms are, they have been downloaded millions of times. That just shows you in, in silence how many people are suffering from uh, GI disorders right there. 
right? So that's urgency. So urgency is one uh, problem that you will have. Another issue that is very common is what we call sensation of incomplete evacuation. That's a lot of work, but what it means is that after you have a bowel movement, that sensation of complete evacuation that was like, oh yeah, I'm done. You don't get that. Uh, and that's one uh, symptom that IBS patients have. The biggest problem uh, that most patients have is bloating and abdominal distension. Just to differentiate bloating and distension is that bloating is that when you eat, you feel full, uh, but you don't get visibly distended. Abdominal distension is that when you're like distended to a point that, okay, I have to switch to stretch pants or I have to go a couple of notches on my belt uh, to feel comfortable. And that is also very uh, common in uh, patients with IBS. On top of that, uh, patients uh, experience early satiety. So you eat and within uh, 15 to one hour, 15 minutes to one hour after eating, you feel like, oh, I, I just don't feel good. I feel gross, right? So you feel a sensation of indigestion. So that's uh, that's one other uh, symptom that is very common in uh, IBS. And uh, and it also can have other symptoms as well, extra intestinal manifestations of IBS, uh, manifestations of IBS that goes beyond just the GI tract. For example, fatigue, very common in patients with IBS. Postprandial brain fog, meaning that after eating, you feel like, oh my God, why am I so sleepy? Why can't I not function? For example, I have a patient who works in a bank and he says that, well, I, I was making mistakes after eating. So he's to a point that he doesn't eat while he's at work because he gets to that point of brain fog. So all those symptoms, um, they, they don't have to be all present in one patient. But if you have a few of them all together, that is uh, possible that you're suffering from irritable bowel syndrome. And one of the main causes of irritable bowel syndrome that we will get into in detail is uh, SIBO uh, that's, uh, that can cause all these uh, problems. So you can have IBS and SIBO at the same time, can't you? Absolutely. So there is a big overlap between irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO. Uh, and this is kind of a concept that is coming about uh, in, in recent years uh, to a point that, um, you know, let's step back a little bit. Remember, IBS and all these symptoms that I told you, if you go back to the literature 40, 50 years ago, even up to 30 years ago, uh, or even if you ask a kind of like a old school doctor, mm. they considered a, a psychosomatic disease. They would say that, well, oh no, this is a disease that uh, it's just because of whatever stress or psychological stressor that you were uh, under. It's just your brain is just telling you that you have these symptoms. There is nothing organically wrong. Yeah. Having said that, things change uh, in terms of uh, pathophysiology and understanding of uh, uh, what's causing these symptoms. And one of those is the role of microbiome and also the small intestinal uh, bacterial growth or SIBO in it. So a lot of uh, IBS patients turned out to have uh, SIBO. So treatment of SIBO will help with, uh, with IBS patients. On the other side, there are some SIBO patients that they don't have IBS-like symptoms. So they have, they present in different ways. So it's, if you think of a Venn diagram, there is not a per, uh, perfect overlap. There is a separation, but there's a big uh, overlap in between still. Yeah. I ended up getting my SIBO after 
I think it was a couple of months later, but I want to go back a little bit and ask you regarding going to the toilet, like the more frequent uh, in, in going, uh, change of bowel habits. Why is uh, going more than once a day, why is that bad for our guts? So it's not necessarily bad. So if you uh, think about it, uh, the normal uh, range of bowel habits is actually one bowel movement every three days, all the way to three bowel movements a day. So it's a big range. It's the change. Every one of us is different, right? So for me, maybe it's uh, normal to have like two bowel movements a day. Uh, Two bowel movements a day for somebody else can be too much. Uh, So it's just that the way that the uh, gut shapes itself and then gets affected by IBS, that you just have a change in bowel habits and then that change obviously it's not good for you right yeah. uh, and that's that's uh, makes uh, a world of difference in terms of how it affects your microbiome and how it affects the function uh, of your gi tract yeah right? Have, having ibs is not fun because yeah. i think it was very much like what you said you you kind of have this little bit of a i, I wouldn't call it fear but i think you're you don't want to eat because of the pain that you'll experience after eating. So you kind of hold off quite a right. bit. And I think you, re- you just restrict the eating window that you, you have, or I do at least so that I don't feel bloated all the time. And because it always happens to me at nighttime. So in the morning I'm fantastic. I am, you know, love feeling empty. But then after I've eaten my first meal at lunchtime, and then moving into the afternoon, I get fatigued. I just, I get sometimes the brain fog, um, the pain, you know, and it's interesting because I've changed my diet so many times. The, the one diet that really helped me overcome SIBO and IBS back, I still follow it technically today, was Dr. Mm-hmm. Stephen Gundry's diet, the, the plant paradox diet. So cutting things out that really did affect my gut microbiome, Mm-hmm. testing things, you name it. But it was interesting because of what you said earlier uh, about stress, like the old old days, because mm-hmm. my old gastro, he said that to me as well. He's like, you have a habit of uh, being too stressed. And when you are stressed, you it goes down to your gut. So just be careful of that. Watch out for it. And you can probably help out your RBS a lot more. Did I listen? Probably not. <laughs> uh, probably should, but um, yeah, that's really my my whole experience, or has been my whole experience with IBS. Yeah, I mean, there are multiple points that I can uh, we can open up and uh, on what you said. So one thing about the stress that you mentioned. Um, so actually, the story is actually interesting, right? So in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, people would, would say that, oh, yeah, all those uh, Wall Street people who uh, are uh, getting um, stress ulcers and the bleeding and all. So it's because of they have the most stressful job. I don't know out of all jobs. I don't know why Wall Street is considered super stressful. But anyhow, but, you know, uh, came again, Barry Marshall from Australia, and uh, figure out the H. pylori is causing the uh, ulcers. Uh, and also on top of it, we know that smoking and drinking and eating like um, you know fatty food is also bad as well. Uh, so on top of it, obviously, uh, probably the worst 
um, lifestyle that people had was in Wall Street. So obviously they were the ones being affected uh, the most. So it wasn't necessarily the stress. It, It was all those organic factors that we figured out. Now, a lot of patients uh, come to me uh, and even my, uh, myself, right? So during like a medical uh, exams and all, uh, I would always have like changing bowel habits. So why is that? Uh, it's not uh, specifically the stress itself is the fact that how do we react to that stress? When we're stressed, well, we don't exercise, right? Uh, we start eating uh, not the way we sh- we're supposed to and we don't sleep well and all those affect the GI tract, right? So when you're having uh, you're having an exam, obviously instead of like eating healthy, you're ordering pizza uh, from God knows where, uh, and then you're um, you're not sleeping, right? And then uh, obviously uh, you're not exercising either. So all of a sudden your lifestyle has changed and your gut reacts to it. But the thing is that that reaction, uh, the the easiest explanation is that, oh, yeah, I'm just stressed about the exam. But there are other factors that goes into how you react uh, to that stressful uh, scenario that affects your gut very organically. So that's very important. One thing that you said that was very fascinating, and I think we should should open that up, uh, is that you said in the morning you feel great. And as the day goes along, things get worse. One of the main reasons people thought IBS is psychosomatic four years ago is that, first of all, when you sleep, uh, it doesn't wake you up. And mm-hmm. also when you wake up in the morning, you feel great. So people will say, well, you see, I told you it's in your head uh, because when you sleep, it's, it's all good. But now we understand why it's happening and uh, allow me to kind of maybe open this up in two or three minutes so we understand the pathophysiology. So in early uh, 90s, we started to do something called anthroduodenal manometry. It's a catheter that goes through the nose, goes into the esophagus, and then into uh, the small bowel. So what it shows is the contraction of the, the bowel. Until then, we didn't know that the bowel actually functions very in a very organized way. So when you eat, uh, let's say that something heavy, including uh, proteins and also a greasy food, it goes into your stomach. You go into something we call feeding phase. Now, in the feeding phase, food sits in the stomach and stomach starts to grind and titrate the food and mix it with the acid and the enzymes. That combination of food with the acid is called chyme. Um, So it needs to be broken down into one millimeter pieces until the uh, sphincter between the stomach and the small bowel to allow it to go through. So when that chyme enters the small bowel, at that stage, you enter the fasting phase. And the fasting stage of this small bowel is clockwork. It has three phases. Number one is silence. So essentially it waits for the chyme to go into the small bowel. Remember, stomach is acidic, right? So it has to go to the small bowel and the bicarbonate from the pancreas comes in and mix up with it. So it has neutral pH right now. Waits for that to happen. And then it gets mixed up with the enzyme in the small bowel. Then phase two starts. 
phase two is actually uh, very neat as well. So it's, it is non-propagating contractions of the small bowel that mixes the food, uh, mixes with the enzymes, and also gets it closer to the lining of the bowel, which are these tiny villi are sitting, and the food gets absorbed by these tiny villi, and then goes and, and uh, the nutrients go inside our body. So this this happens so we can we can uh, get nut uh, nutrients from the food and remember the small bowel is not a small organ it's six meters and yep. its surface area uh, is um, uh, so as big as a tennis court you know just uh, your eventful uh, uh, Melbourne Grand Slam was just happening was uh, anyway so it's just uh, so anyways uh, so that it's a, it's a big surface but then. After that, a magical wave that I call it, because I because I study it, I call it magical, uh, but it's called housekeeper waves. Housekeeper waves happen every 90 to 120 minutes, start from the beginning of the small bowel, sweep through the small bowel, and dump everything, including residual food, residual enzymes, and also the bacteria that are in the colon come back to the small bowel, back to the colon, the large bowel. Oh. So that is integral for the health of uh, the small uh, the small bowel and also the gut. And those waves are affected in IBS patients. A lot, about 70% of IBS patients, those waves are infrequent, or weak, or they don't exist at all. So I said something about bacteria creeping back from the colon into the small bowel, which now we're getting into the microbiome and SIBO part of these things. So remember, our mouth is relatively dirty. It's about a 1 billion bacteria sitting per ml in our mouth. We're just hanging out right now that I'm talking with you. Right. In the colon, it's even worse. <laughs> it's one trillion bacteria per ml, per cc. Even uh, if you in brush the your teeth. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even if you brush the teeth, man, it's, it's, they're still hanging out. Right. Oh. But in this small bowel, magically, it's less than 1,000. So in between <laughs> literally these two dirty areas, small bowel is sitting there in a relatively sterile uh, condition. So how does it do it? The most important thing is this housekeeper wave. It doesn't have antibiotic. If these housekeeping wave by massaging it can keep kicking out the bacteria into the colon. Because the bacteria in the colon, there's so much bacteria in the colon. Because you know, remember, there are so there are more bacteria in our colon than we have cells in our body, right? So we're literally more bacteria at the end of the day than humans. But these bacteria in the colon creep back up into the small bowel constantly. Why? Because these are not stupid. They're like, okay, why am I sitting in the colon literally eating crap while there's fresh food up there, right? Mm -hmm. So they creep back up into the small bowel. But the housekeeper waves say that, oh, no, not here. Go back where you are. Now, if, if these waves are affected, like a lot of IBS patients, the bacteria in the colon come to the small bowel, and now you have a lot of bacteria sitting in the small bowel, overpopulating because there's a lot of food there. And now when you eat, instead of you digesting it, the bacteria digest it. 
What do bacteria do when they digest? They ferment, they produce gas, they produce hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, methane, carbon dioxide, right? And that makes the small bowel like a party balloon full of gas. You feel bloated and distended, and that gas can't move forward because small bowel is skilled to push food forward, uh, not gas. Our colon is obviously skilled to push gas forward, but not small bowel. So it gets confused. That's why a lot of simple patients say, hey, my gas is trapped inside of me. I can't belch it out and I can't pass it as a flatulence. So I'm stuck. Um, so what happens is that Overnight, this gas dissipates into the bloodstream, some of it, and we breathe it out. Uh, and overnight, we don't eat. We're not feeding the bacteria, so there is no production of gas. Hence, in the morning, you wake up the best. As the day goes along, that food that you're eating, some of it gets fermented by the bacteria, and they produce a lot of uh, gas, and you get bloated and more bloated and more distended. And that's how uh, the uh, system works. So it wasn't in people's head that they wake up with a flat abdomen and they are doing well when they're sleeping. They're doing their, uh, well while sleeping because they're not eating. Mm -hmm. uh, so and they're not, you're not feeding the bacteria. And that was essentially the, the, the big change that happened in uh, the world of IBS to a point that a disease that was considered psychosomatic 40 years ago all of a sudden, there is an antibiotic approved by FDA for treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. So it's a complete shift of things that has happened in understanding of irritable bowel syndrome, you know, with uh, the help of microbiome. Sorry, that was a long explanation. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no I, I love it. I think it, this is all fascinating stuff yeah. because I, yeah. I, I'm, I am learning as I'm going along. Even though I've looked at it so many different times and spoken to a number of gastros in the past, it, it's fascinating to see like with my current symptoms, whether or not my SIBO has in fact come back. Mm -hmm. uh, because before the, for me, I was actually burping quite a bit. Uh, I couldn't stop burping and then farting quite a bit as well. So it was like, I think the SIBO, the gas wasn't, remaining inside too much. It wanted to come out a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that was a difference with me. Mm. And then when I went on the change of diet, that mm. sort of shifted everything. So I wasn't burping as much and I wasn't farting as much. But mm. the interesting thing is now, even though I'm not burping or farting much, I've got, I guess, that buildup. So I'm wondering if it's just staying there now and yeah, it's an interesting thing, I think. Yeah. For me. No, that that's 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 actually not uncommon either. Uh, because remember, we can pass gas with the gas that is in the colon. We can burp with the gas that is in the uh, stomach. So there is there's gonna be gas in those areas. But with the small bowel, we can't do much, and that's where you feel uh the um, the action right now. And then that is uh, a very common. Uh, complaint about uh, that patients have. So you talked about the diet and essentially what, why, why diet helps is that, so bacteria love to eat sugar. 
Bacteria yeah. love to eat <laughs> uh, carbohydrates, right? Um, if you leave uh, like um, olive oil out there, it can sit there thousands of years. No bacteria kind of like is going to eat that. But if you pour a little bit of fish sugar on top uh, and mix it, and then two days later, you're going to come, there's going to be mold on it and whatever. So, right? So they love sugar and they thrive on it. So the idea is to decrease the amount of carbohydrates in the diet and to move more towards uh, digestible proteins and, uh, uh, you know, and a moderate amount of fat uh, to have that type of diet to provide a less favorable environment for uh, the bacteria to thrive on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not going to kill them completely. It's not going to wipe them out, but it makes it harder for them to, you know, multiply and having party in the small bowel so then they do whatever they want to do right so uh, that's uh, that's the whole concept of diet and that's why diets are so successful uh, in controlling uh, irritable bowel syndrome having said that there are some diets that makes life even more miserable that they're so restrictive uh, you know I you know in Australia for example you, you live like the uh, um, the ingredients in the foods are, are quite immense, right? And we're in California. There are like so many different ethnic foods and all that stuff. So you don't want to be going to uh, that restaurant. You're that uh, person that uh, asks the server every single item that is in the food and all that, and there is nothing you can eat. Some of these diets are so restricted uh, that you can't choose anything. So that was one of my our goals uh, with writing that cookbook, uh, helping writing that cookbook and also the the other book to help. Okay, these are the recipes that you can make to help you uh, to um, uh, to have a normal social life. Because you know, um, at the end of the day, uh, irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO. The good thing about it is that it doesn't become cancer. It doesn't alter the bowel, but it affects the quality of life immensely. So it defeats the purpose. If I give you a diet that I'm making your quality of life even worse by a super restrictive of like chicken and egg uh, sort of diet. So that's that's what I was seeing that patients are suffering from. And this diet over the years that we've developed over the last 15 years has helped a lot of patients. We're like, okay, let's put it out there. So a lot of patients can help. Uh, it can be helped. Is one of the symptoms, this is just my mind, uh, spinning here a little bit is one of the symptoms of SIBO and IBS. Can it be night sweats? So yes, it can. So uh, it is, um, as I said, there is a set of ex- I didn't go into detail into it. We call it extra intestinal manifestations of uh, uh, SIBO. Uh, that can be brain fog. We mentioned it. The night sweats the weight gain and sometimes weight loss that can happen uh, with uh, patients. Um, insomnia uh, is actually another, uh, a very common symptom that, uh, that we see. Now, what causes it? We don't exactly know. That's actually one of the fields of research that we work on. Uh, what we think is that uh, these bacteria, they're not just there to produce gas. Remember, bacteria have been around so that a living organism can produce. Anything that they produce, bacteria produces as well. 
So when they're exposed to it, they can produce uh, different types of um, neurotransmitters. And these neurotransmitters can get into the blood, cause all sorts of symptoms. This can be histamine, bacteria can produce histamine. They can produce serotonin. They can produce, I mean, like, interesting for you, uh, that's even like they produce sex hormones, whether uh, male hormones, uh, or it can even produce female hormones. They, they can produce anything that you can think of. So depending on what type of bacteria has overgrown, they can produce side products that produces different uh, side effects. Uh, so that's the, um, the a science called metabolomics. Uh, that's what they, they produce and meta, uh, what, um, what molecules they can produce. And based on that, we can figure out what causes the disease. Uh, so that's one of the fields that we work on. So yeah, definitely can cause night sweats. This is uh, why it's such a deadly disease, <laughs> to be honest. Like it, it affects so much of our, of our body and our system. Like, yeah, we need, we need help to, to fix it. So what are some of the, the, mo the more common food groups or items besides sugar that do affect us eventually getting IBS and SIBO? Is it more wheat, um, those sorts of food groups? Yeah. So there are multiple uh, food groups that can sort of promote the growth of the, the bacteria. One group are the artificial sugars. Uh, these artificial sugars are sugar alcohols. Uh, the majority of them, except for, for example, aspartame, that is not a sugar alcohol. Sugar alcohols are made in a way that they, um, uh, they are uh, very sweet, but they don't get absorbed by us. But that is not true for the bacteria. Bacteria love sugar alcohol, so they can produce a lot of uh, gas when they're exposed to it. So that's why a lot of people, when they take diet sodas, um, uh, that they get uh, bloated and they get uh, uh, abdominal distension. So that's that's one group uh, that is affecting it. Interesting enough that you mentioned the uh, wheat product uh, and essentially gluten-containing foods. Uh, obviously, that's not a generalized rule, but there are patients with celiac disease that when they're exposed to gluten, then uh, the uh, the small bowel becomes inflamed. When small bowel becomes inflamed, the motility gets affected, i.e. the housekeeper waves are not working. When housekeeper waves are not working, the bacteria overgrows. Now, you're not just gluten. Anything else can cause trouble, right? So that's that. And also there are patients who are gluten sensitive, not all patients, but again, uh, if you're gluten sensitive, then this whole process can repeat itself. Unfortunately, we are different in terms of uh, uh, our body composition, composition the genetic uh, formation, and also the inherent normal microbiome that we have. So we don't react the same to the, the food that we eat. I mean, if you go out there, uh, eat together, I mean, you will have different reactions to the same food. So it's, there is no universal sort of like key that I can tell, give you, say that, hey, don't eat these two things and you won't get uh, IBS-like symptoms. That's not like that. It's a little bit of a, a try and error for all a lot of patients to figure out, hey, yeah, 
garlic definitely messes me up. Let's put that aside. But unlike a lot of people, lettuce, eh, it's working well, fine with me. So I can take that. So a little bit of an experimentation needs to happen in each patient. And that's just the nature of uh, how complex our bodies are. And you can't find a single diet that works. But what we, but the uh, the diet, for example, with low fermentation eating that we have is something that works in the majority of the patients and it helps them significantly. Yeah. I was looking through some of the recipes here and, and Leek shows up a bit. Um, so yeah. Leek, Leek seems to be like a superfood in a way. Uh, eggs, that's, that's all fine. Um, cabbage, so... Uh, is kombucha okay as well? Uh, kombucha is, if you have filtered it, we generally uh, uh, okay it. But if it's like fresh kombucha with, uh, you know, active uh, the uh, uh, fungi in it, we I, I generally suggest not to uh, um, take that because that causes significant amount of bloating. I mean, there are a lot of food items that you can take without getting uh, a lot of symptoms. For example, even from the green leaves that generally people say, that, oh, no, SIBO, do not take any vegetables. That's going to mess you up. That's not necessarily true. For example, spinach is okay. Regula is okay. Leek is okay. Uh, kale is okay. I know not many people are a fan of kale, but hey, kale is okay. Uh, even bacteria don't like it. Uh, but uh, that's uh, those are all good. Berries are all good. Um, uh, raspberries, uh, blueberries, uh, no problem. You can take those. And you said that in terms of protein, chicken is okay, fish is okay, um, eggs are okay, uh, pork is okay, and um, and the oils are generally okay to make your food. Uh, a lot of spices are okay to be taken, um, and that's uh, so that gives you a whole bunch of uh, recipes. Another thing that actually uh, causes trouble. Is not dairy itself, is the lactose in the uh, dairy. Lactose is a disaccharide that is very, disaccharide means that the two uh, single monosaccharide attached to each other, uh, that is very fermentable and digestible for uh, the bacteria. So a lot of people with lactose intolerance, in fact, have SIBO. Uh, it's just that when they drink milk, they get super sick, they think that they're lactose intolerant. So uh, in my patients, I recommend that they go on lactose-free milk or try um, a vegetable, a vegetable-based uh, or uh, a plant-based uh, mm. um, uh, milks. For example, oat milk works really well with uh, with patients with SIBO. So those are the options that you have uh, to get help with uh, uh, with the diet. Yeah. So, how do we cure? Effectively, how do we cure, can we cure IBS and can we cure SIBO as well? Is it mainly through diet or do we need help through medications? And that's that's a great question. So I break it down into actually three pillars. The pillars are one, are they modifiable uh, underlying causes that you can get rid of, right? Number two. Uh, of induction of remission, and three, maintenance of that remission. In terms of uh, finding underlying modifiable causes, sometimes, for example, you have a mild 
brewing sort of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that uh, you treated with a course of antibiotics and then uh, you um, uh, go on a, like a limited uh, diet for a short period of time, you come out, you're good, you're, you're done. So that's a mild disease that can be cured. It's actually uh, in uh, about one third of the patients. Or if it's because you have some sort of small bowel pathology uh, that is ongoing that you find it. Uh, for example, if you have inflammation, is it because of Crohn's disease, because of celiac disease, because of uh, um, uh, diseases that are affecting the small bowel in a sense that it's causing tethering of the bowel, like adhesions that can be uh, health. Uh, and those can be fixed and your IBS goes away. For example, a lot of patients with narcotics have IBS-like symptoms. So obviously you have to work with the patient to get them off of narcotics, right? So those are modifiable causes uh, that, uh, that right now we can treat. Having said that, that is not the end. What we're researching on is the role of immunity, autoimmunity, uh, and see if we can cure IBS in that regard as well. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I talked about uh, food poisoning. I didn't go into detail why food poisoning causes um, uh, IBS, and that's through autoimmunity. Autoimmunity means that uh, your body, your immune system is attacking your system. So what happens is that when you get food poisoning, for example, with Campylobacter, what we, dis uh, we discovered is that there is a protein inside of it Name is not important, but the name is cytolethal dystenic toxin or CDTB. So that protein goes inside your body, you produce antibodies against it. And those antibodies are similar um, to a, a attack a similar protein in our body called vinculin. So there is molecular mimicry and attacks vinculin. Vinculin is on our body. The problem is that vinculin in our body is involved in the nerves of the gut talking with each other. So mm -hmm. now you have antibodies against vinculin and the nerves can talk. And the first thing that goes away when enteric nervous system is not working is those housekeeper waves go away. And those housekeeper go away, then SIBO comes, right? So essentially a food poisoning leads to an immune reaction. That immune reaction leads to an autoimmunity. That autoimmunity damages the nerves of the gut. Damage of that nerves of the gut leads to effect uh, on the motility of the gut. And that leads to change in microbiome. So essentially this whole system and that original bug that caused food poisoning is long gone. This is long side effects of this. So now you can imagine uh, we're working on uh, ways to get rid of this antibody via um, different modalities uh, to help the gut now working weather. So that would be a type of cure that is on the way. So there are a lot of drugs in the pipeline uh, for patients that is uh, coming. That is, uh, that is quite fascinating how it's, it's working. The next step, after, uh, so sometimes you can't find that modifiable cause. So say that, okay, now I have to treat the SIBO uh, with antibiotics. And usually the antibiotics is the uh, first route that uh, we use, whether we use systemic antibiotics or preferably non-absorbable or poorly absorbable antibiotics. Poorly absorbable antibiotics are antibiotics that go through the gut. Uh, they don't get absorbed. So you don't get systemic side effects, but they prune the bacteria in the small bowel. So we treat the patients that way, 
And if it doesn't work there, you can use alternative antibiotics or there is something called elemental diet uh, that you can use to suppress the amount of bacteria. Uh, that's a whole sort of different uh, sort of topic that we can talk about in detail if you want. So that's the induction of remission, meaning that you suppress the bacteria and then next you go to maintenance of remission. How do I stop for the disease to come back. Well, number one is the diet. Try to put patients on a reasonable uh, diet without restricting the patient too much. A, a one, one important point that I need to mention is meal spacing. That's very important. What do I mean by meal spacing? Meaning that at least eight hours of no eating overnight and also five hours of uh, not eating between meals. Why is it that important? It's remember the housekeeper weeds only happen at the time of fasting. So they don't, when you eat, they don't happen. So if you continue to graze throughout the day, you'll get more and more bloated, no matter who you are, uh, because the housekeeper waves are being uh, suppressed. So that's another important thing. And the third thing that we use are medications that accentuate the housekeeper waves. So these uh, medications help the uh, housekeeper waves to get stronger and stronger and more frequent, right? And those are called pro-motility drugs. These are drugs that help the motility of the gut. Now there are multiple, one of them uh, on the market and you can try what works for each uh, patient. So now the future of IBS uh, in, in part is becoming how you modify the microbiome, whether through diet, uh, and elemental diet, and also how to re, um, uh, re repair uh, the, um, the motility of the gut by giving medications that help the motility or getting rid of the underlying uh, modifying cause, modifiable cause to help with the motility of the gut. So that's, that's where it's aiming at, which is quite a difference from 30, 40 years ago that you would just show up at the office and were like, okay, here's your antidepressant, uh, good luck. Uh, this will numb you uh, and uh, you won't, and this will uh, help with your symptoms. Cause you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, there are a lot of diseases that you can just treat them with a Band-Aid and send patient home. But getting to the root of it, uh, is what is satisfying both for doctors and also patients and the fact that they will get a better care and, and, and just move on. Yeah. Which is why I like your approach to things. It's not just put a bandaid on it, move on. Let's get to the root cause of it yeah. and let's give people yeah. ways and strategies on how to heal because that's part of health, right? It's part of, I guess, being a doctor Absolutely. and part of taking care of one's own self at the same time too. So I've really enjoyed this conversation, Dr. Ali. You've answered so many questions and given me so much great advice. I mean, I could speak to you for hours about this stuff, believe you me. I mean, uh, also last year, um, my audience is going to love this. Jay's got so many problems or he's, he's been through so much with his gut. Poor guy. <laughs> um, but they also discovered last year just randomly that I had a, a esophagitis soph uh, or whatever it's called. Um, in my esophagus. Oh, so now, that's it. Yeah. I can never say it correctly. No matter how many times I practice, 
one of those things. <laughs> um, the yeah. easiest way is to just say E O E. That's it. It's good. People e- will know. E O E. Yeah. E O E. That thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that yeah. horrible thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. pretty much um, what I. They found it just on a whim, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, they put me on medication for that and. Uh, I mean, sort of remission at the moment, but what that did was gave me in nasty, nasty reflux. Um, and I've got to watch reflux with my kidneys as well. It's like, yeah, right. the miracle I'm still, still living, Dr. Ali, by the sound of it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but it's, that's another common, uh, uh disease and, and young, uh, Patients, but interesting enough, that also has a treatment, a proven evidence-based treatment via a diet. So elemental diet that I mentioned, uh, it's actually helped this uh, disease as well. So just, just to break down what elemental diet means is that everything that we eat uh, has essentially three components, carbohydrate, fat, and protein, right? Elemental diet is these components broken into their elemental pieces. So carbohydrates into uh, mono and disaccharides, proteins into amino acids, and fat into fatty acids. So this food is the least allergenic food that you can take, essentially they come into essentially liquid form. And you take it uh, and it gets absorbed within the first few feet of the small bowel. The advantage of that getting absorbed in the first few feet of the small bowel is that the rest of the bowel doesn't see a food. So the bacteria and microbiome resets. Uh, so that suppresses small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. That has been shown to be even more effective than antibiotics in uh, patients with SIBO. But interesting enough, it's also helpful in patients with EOE. Why? Uh, because it's the least allergenic food that we have uh, in part Eosinophilic esophagitis is driven by allergies, and uh, and the main allergens that cause that are the food allergens. So you suppress that, this heals. So uh, that's why uh, probably you you were mentioned that elemental diet to to t- uh, treat the uh, disease, and also something called six food elimination diets to help with the eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, which is it's interesting this connection between uh, the um, uh, the food and multiple GI disorders. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon to hear uh, that patients with EOE have IBS as well and SIBO as well. So they go all hand in hand because remember, eosinophilic esophagitis is infiltration of these eosinophils that are inflammatory cells. Whenever there is inflammation, the movement of that hollow organ becomes a little bit stiff. Whenever there is abnormality of the movement, the bacteria inside changes, i.e. causes dysbiosis, i.e. causes SIBO. uh, And that causes a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of this infiltration of xenophils is not just limited to uh, esophagus. Sometimes it goes all the way to stomach, small bowel and all. And uh, good data uh, is coming out uh, not just by our group, actually, a, a Dr. Nick Daly in Australia is one of the pioneers in that field. Um, it's mm-hmm. close to you. It's actually he's in uh, Newcastle, I think. Uh, oh. Yeah. So, great. It's, it's very exciting times. 
Go Australia. You should talk with him too. Australia, <laughs> yeah. Well done. Yeah. yeah. I, I might need to yeah. go and see him as well. Like, because I was told <laughs> with my uh, EOS that uh, it could, if I don't treat it properly the right way, then it could develop into being becoming uh, throat cancer. Could be really, really bad depending on how many levels that I had. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I need to get a handle on that, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so it's, it's, you need to, you need to take control, but I mean, that's, uh, that, uh, uh, dealing with all these GI disorders. One thing is that don't lose hope. Uh, new things are coming and a lot of them can be helped with the diet, uh, and natural remedies, but there are a lot of effective medications as well for a lot of them. So, uh, you need uh, to be informed uh, and, you know, don't don't just brush it off. Uh, some of these diseases can have complications, so you need to be on top of it. So you need to be a little bit disciplined. Yeah, and be wise. <laughs> yeah, do, do that too. Listen to Dr. Ali. Don't listen yeah. to me. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm just the one that's struggling through all these things and trying to figure out how to fix myself in the process. Okay. Uh, which is a lot of fun, believe you me. <laughs> yeah. um, but Dr. Ali, where do you want people to find you, connect with you, and learn more about your incredible work? Um, I'm on Twitter. So if they want to follow me, that's that's where we usually post our um, new research and what we are doing and the books that we publish and the papers that we publish. That is usually like one every couple of weeks, a new paper comes out uh to and that's that's a that's a good uh, firm to get uh a data out um so yeah so i, I would say that's a, that's a good uh, sort of uh, avenue uh to follow me yeah and, you, and you've also got the microbiome connection which is a book people can go right and get a copy of that is that correct that's that's correct. I mean, uh, Dr. Pimentel and I um, so put together this book uh, that essentially summarizes uh, about uh, 20 years of our works in one book in terms of the role of microbiome uh, in GI health uh, and also role of microbiome and not just GI health and health in general. Uh, that that is coming out in April. So uh, keep an eye on that. Very exciting. And you're also part of the cookbook that I mentioned. He wrote the forward with um, the other doctor, Dr. Yes. Pimentel, um, you. which you can go and get a copy of both of those books too, just to support Dr. Ali and, and the incredible work and to say thank you so much you. For, for providing so much uh, wisdom you. for everyone. Dr. Ali, uh, my final question for you, this is my all-time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end of all my conversations as a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. They've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, I should have thought of this question before coming on the uh, but uh, and then on this, the spot. How do you on feel? this podcast? But yeah, so I, you know, again, kind of goes back to uh, my definition of success. 
is that I set some goals for myself to achieve. Um, I may not have uh, achieved all of them, but I, I hope I have tried my best to get into those because we, we work on multiple different things. And one of them, obviously, is the role of microbiome. Uh, I, uh, we invented internal UV therapy to help uh, patients uh, as an alternative to antibiotics. Uh, and I'm pretty sure if I live to 100 uh, years, a lot of these have gone into uh, multiple generations and uh, uh, innovations. And hopefully they're helping millions of patients at that time. And I think that is going to be the most fulfilling message if I make it to 100. <laughs> <laughs> That's the crucial part, right? <laughs> I'm going to make it to 100 first. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a first in my family. But anyways. <laughs> hey, you never know, man. You never know. Uh, you could be the first. How about that? That would be awesome. And you can look back at this podcast and say, hey, I said it here first. Yeah, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you a call then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how old I'll be by that time. But um, anyway, Dr. Ali, thank you so much once again for your time with me today. Really did enjoy this conversation. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the Storybox podcast. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Jay. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the story box. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.